Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 34th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today our topic is the American Bar Association's 2010 Legal Technology Survey Report. And we are very fortunate to have with us today a very special guest, our good friend, Catherine Sanders-Reach. Catherine is the director of the American Bar Association's Legal Technology Resource Center. In that role, she has provided practice technology assistance for lawyers for over 10 years. In fact, if you're an ABA member, you can call Catherine's department to get advice about technology as a member benefit. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Jim and Sharon, and thanks, Jim, for not telling them to call me directly, although I will accept calls but can't handle them all myself. That's why I have a great team. <laughs> well, it's good to have you with us, Catherine. And, and, yes, remember that it's a whole team, folks, when you make that phone call. Catherine, as, as you uh, looked over the results of the survey, what one result surprised you the most, and tell us why. Well, the, it's more ironic than surprising in the very first survey, the Tech Basics, we asked the question where they receive their information about legal technology specifically. Ironic, the highest responses overall are for print publications at 69%, then followed by websites and blogs at 56, or excuse me, 69% for print, 56% for websites and blogs, 39% peers. And then staff and bar associations come in at the high 30s. So I thought it was very interesting that, you know, we're, we're using an online survey tool. Um, we're asking about technology use, but when they, they're going to get legal technology information primarily out of print resources and at the very lowest end use of uh, RSS feeds at 4%. Well, uh, Catherine, as you know, I really love my uh, new uh, iPhone, and I know that a lot of lawyers are talking to me a lot about smartphones. Did the survey have any results about the, the, the way lawyers use smartphones? We asked about use of smartphones in all different places in the six survey reports, and one of the things we see year over year is just an increasing use of smartphones, kind of ditching the use of your standard cell phone that doesn't have a lot of extra bells and whistles. And last year, one attorney actually went so far as to write a Dr. Seuss-esque type poem to explain how he uses his smartphone in his everyday life, and this was in the other category, so he, he spent a good bit of time writing a, pun a funny poem that we all had a good time reading. <laughs> that's hilarious that anybody would go to that amount of time and trouble. You wonder how much billable time that took. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go back to survey surprises because as I was looking over some of the results, I was really surprised that 14% of the respondents said that they were engaged in the virtual practice of law. And that's a statistic that Jim and I actually quoted in our, our last podcast on virtual lawyering. What do you attribute the rise in virtual lawyering to, Catherine? Well, and you know, I recently read a, um, a blog post from someone from the eLorean community who suggested that our definition of virtual law practice was a bit broader than what the eLorean task force uses. So I think that when we talk about uh, virtual law practice in the survey, the way we defined it is you don't typically meet with clients in person. You primarily interact with clients using internet-based software, other electronic communication software, or third-party web-based tools. And so at that point, answering that question, we did see a, a number of percentage points leap into a 14%. And with solos, it was even higher at 19%. 
we did specifically ask questions about what types of online legal services does the firm provide from its website or provide to clients and prospective clients via third-party websites or web services? So trying to incorporate the SaaS model as well as stuff that you do yourself. And we ask about client intake questionnaires, real-time consultations with prospective clients, online document preparation. We're seeing not huge increases in any of those. Probably the one that we saw jump fairly, you know, dramatically by about five percentage points was online document preparation. So there is is a, a more sophisticated use of the web being made by attorneys, again, with a kind of slightly broader definition. To kind of dig into this whole e-lawyering thing a little bit <clears throat> further, looking at the questions we ask about availability of extranets, in uh, 2010, we had 36% of the respondents report availability of extranets. Now, large firm respondents, and that's compared to 31% in 2009. 2007, if you want to look that, that far back, we're seeing 27%. So in 2007, we had 27% say they had extranets, 36 in 2010. Large firm respondents uh, are more likely at 77% to have an extranet solo respondents, not surprisingly, are the least likely at 7%. So that's a pretty wide disparity between solo and large firm attorneys. We asked them whether different people have access to their firm's extranets. The firm's lawyers primarily have access, but it's always amusing to me because we've asked this question for a number of years. When we ask about clients having access to the extranet, the numbers tend to drop. So we have 32% reporting that their clients have access to the extranets, which means that a lot of these large firms appear to be using the extranets as a way, as kind of a VPN or a way to get access to the firm's data while they're out of the office and not necessarily as a client tool. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That is very interesting because you'd think that one of the big things about extranets would be able to set up client document repositories. So uh, uh, we'll be reviewing that as a uh, we move on. Let's talk a little bit about online research. I'm an old enough lawyer that I remember way back when the primary method of doing legal research was books on shelves and libraries. Now, of course, it's all about online and digital research. Where do lawyers go first when they start a new research project? And, and is the supposition true that younger lawyers tend to use the free online research tools more than fee-based tools? We ask this year in a new question, where do you go first when you start a research project? Now, in the past, we asked them when you start an online research project. This time, we broaden it out to when you're starting out doing a research project, where do you go? Fee-based internet resources, free internet resources. We still put CD-ROM, and we still get people who do print materials. And so 46% are using free internet-based resources, followed by fee-based resources at 34%, then print materials at 15%. So here we see that when they're starting out a new project, overall, they're jumping into the free stuff and not going into the fee stuff immediately. Now, when you look at firm size, we're definitely seeing a higher uh, number of small firms going to the free than that percentage, but not by a huge amount, but 48% when you look at small firms. 
And then by age, what I find interesting is when you look at the attorneys who responded who were under 40 to the survey, 48% are using free resources, 40% fee-based. So that's remarkably close considering that we would just kind of think that because they were younger, they're jumping on the free stuff. And that's actually from last year because last year the younger attorneys tended to go more towards the fee-based things. And I postulate that that's because they have been using Westlaw and LexisNexis in an unfettered environment in law school. And then they get out and they're kind of used to that. And it takes a little while to realize, oh, my firm's billing back for that. Yeah, I think you're probably right, Catherine. And and also another thing I've noticed is that they they have developed West and Lexus Nexus in order to compete with some of these free tools. They have had special pricing for solos and people who have not been long in practice and that sort of thing. And I know that I pay a very favorable rate uh, as a solo practitioner with with West, and I suspect that that's replicated and that's how they're manning, managing to stay competitive in this uh, let's do it for free environment, which we all have. The survey reported quite a rise in the percentage of lawyers using social media tools. That, I guess, in and of itself isn't surprising, but can you give us some statistics and has there been any change in how they use social media and why do you think the numbers have risen so dramatically so fast? Well, and where we've seen the dramatic rise is when we ask about personal use of social, specifically, we talk about blogs and microblogs like Twitter and then social networks. And I'm going to focus on social networks here, things like Facebook and LinkedIn, Legal OnRamp. When we look at personal use, the the numbers have risen quite dramatically. When you look at law firms' use, as in a law firm having a fan site or a business page or what have you, the numbers are not quite as dramatic. So looking at whether firms maintain a presence in an online community or social network like Facebook or LinkedIn or Legal OnRamp, 17% of the respondents have a presence for their firm. Last year it was 12%. In 2008 it was 4 So that's a pretty major leap since 2008, but not the kind of astronomical growth that we're seeing from the personal use, which I'll get to in a second. Large firm respondents are much more likely to have a firm presence in Facebook and LinkedIn. In fact, last year it was 10%. This year it's 23%. So that's a 13% increase, which is quite substantial in large firms having a presence on Facebook or LinkedIn or LawLink. Probably, and and we'll look at this a little bit in a second, mostly LinkedIn is is where a lot of the large firm attorneys and their firms are going. It's it's amusing because 12% of the attorneys and large firms don't know whether they maintain a presence in online communities or social networks. When we ask them if they personally maintain a presence in social networks, in 2009, well, let's start from 2008. In 2008, 15%. In 2009, 43%. This year, it's 56%. So well over half of the people responding have a presence personally in Facebook, LinkedIn, LawLink, LegalOnRamp, one of the social networks. So, And then with large firm respondents, it was 63%, so even higher. Solo respondents at 52%, so slightly lower than the average and then with firms from two to nine attorneys, they were the least likely with 47%, so slightly under the average. 
when we ask about policies in terms of firm policies, because one of the things I think about is maybe the, you know, people aren't participating in the social networks because of the policies or the firm hasn't developed a presence because they're still working out their policies. But apparently they're jumping on in there without having a policy necessarily. <laughs> we ask whether their firms have policies regarding the lawyers or staff participation in social networks. 20% of the respondents have a policy. Last year, that was 9%, and the year before, 4%. So they're definitely doing their homework, writing those policies out, and getting involved with that particular kind of, although how in the world do you police this stuff, I don't know. And I hope that the policies are, are looking kind of like some of the ones we've seen from uh, big media companies that say things like, just don't be stupid. The other thing that we asked this year in a new question is, so it's trying to dig into why people are participating in the social networks. We asked them which network they participated in. The highest percentage of respondents report having a presence in LinkedIn at 83%, and then Facebook at 68%. Plaxo taking a dive at 18%. Martindale Hubble at 4 Lawlink to Twitter to Avo, Link Along Ramp, Legally Minded, or 1% each. So then there were 4% who chose the other option, and that's where they write in, and it, it, it ranges from Ning social sites to bar association social sites, things of that nature, but it's kind of all over the place. 91% of the large firm respondents are maintaining a presence in LinkedIn compared to 75% of solo respondents. The other thing we ask is where they were getting stuff on their clients. So Basically, what kind of return on investment are they getting from maintaining that uh, presence in the social network? We ask, have you ever had a client retain your services as a result of your participation in online community and social networking? About 10% said yes, 80% said no, and we thought that was pretty interesting because that means that there is some return on investment that people are seeing from their participation in social media. I think there probably is. It's just such a new field that I think we're assessing how to use it effectively, and most lawyers have not figured it out, don't you think, Jim? <laughs> yes, I do. And I also wonder how Absolutely. many of those I wonder how many of those, particularly the Facebook people, are really have a non-business motive, whether it's, you know, looking at grandkids' pictures or some group that they're a part of that has a lot of members on Facebook or something. So I think that's all going to be very interesting as we see how this shakes out. But but clearly, you can have an impact with social media, both to the good and to the bad. Right, Sharon? Uh, amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just saw your article, Sharon. I was waiting to read it. I, I did want to mention that we asked them what their common reasons for maintaining a presence in social networking was. And despite Jim probably correct assumption that there's a lot of personal stuff going on, 76% said professional networking, 62% admitted socializing, 42% client development, 17% career development. And interestingly enough, 6% said case investigation, which is a whole different ball of wax. That is very interesting, and, and we know a lot of those are, are family lawyers because we hear more and more stories about interesting evidentiary material found on social networking websites from our family law counterparts here than about anybody else. Yeah, that's that's also true here, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and interesting should be in italics, right? Uh, yes, yes. It's more like how to scorch your eyebrows just by reading. <laughs> 
you know, when the internet first became popular, it was really great to be connected to all of those people and resources out there. And then we soon learned that the problem was that they were all connected back to us. And there's some bad people online. So what types of security tools are lawyers using to keep their client information secure and confidential? And did you have anything in the survey about lawyers using the software as a service or cloud computing model? We did and we do. And in the Tech Basics volume, we do ask about different security tools. We saw a modest rise between 5 and 10 percentage points in different areas of security. Some have already pretty much peaked out. For instance, spam filters. 91% of the respondents are using spam filters at this point. Anti-spyware, you'll be pleased to know it, 81%. Where it starts to fall down a little bit is things like mandatory passwords. In 2009, only 55% said that they had mandatory passwords, and that would be passwords to open up your computer, log into the network, things of that nature. We did see a 7% rise in that. Now we're at 65% are using mandatory passwords. And to me, that is ground zero, the most basic, simple security. It's, it's the equivalent of locking your office door, you know, so that's absolutely something that doesn't take a lot of skill to do, but yet we don't see the level of adoption of something like a spam filter. The other thing that's gotten much easier in terms of, of adding a level of security that more and more because of the, the data breach notification laws and the Massachusetts and Nevada encryption laws, you would think that we would see a bigger rise in the use of file encryption, hard hard drive encryption, email encryption, but that's not been the case in the survey. We saw about a 7% increase in file encryption, so 25% this year versus 18% last year, a 5% increase for email encryption, so that we have about 23% of the respondents saying that they're encrypting their email. Now, looking at it a slightly different way, one of the kind of and not strictly security issues, but one of the things that I'm interested in based on the number of uh, bar associations that have chosen to come out with ethics opinions regarding metadata is we ask about availability of metadata removal software. And that has continued to grow. In fact, in 2009, you were at 46%. In 2010, it's up to 59% of the respondents' firms have metadata removal software. Large firms, it's 92%. So wow. almost ubiquitous across the board, large firms are using metadata removal software. Now, interestingly enough, when we ask them what products they're using, number one, and that's a, it's a voluntary question, but the, the first one they listed was Adobe Acrobat, which, Jim and Sharon, as you know, isn't necessarily <laughs> a metadata removal tool. Fortunately, Payne's metadata removal and the, the Workshare product did come up as second and third listed applications. But, you know, um, that's something that, you know, check your ethics opinions, see if you have anything about metadata. And if you don't read the ethics opinions about metadata and think about kind of what that means for um, how you're behaving and how you're sending out your documents and what may be trailing along with the document, because as Cheryl will tell you, e-discovery is around the corner. 
Ah, indeed, indeed. And, and I'll interject just for a moment because I think Catherine misstated the uh, the word. It's metadata assistant is the name of the program, and that's the one that most solo and small seem seem to use. And Adobe Acrobat, as I'm sure many of the listeners have heard John and I say before, is a poor man's metadata removal. It removes most, but not all of the metadata, and certainly should not be relied upon as a metadata removal tool, as you pointed out, Catherine. And, and I hope I didn't stumble over where you were going. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And absolutely, there's a number of products out there, but Donna Payne's product tends to be one that gets talked about, especially in the solo and small firm market. The, the other question that Jim asked was about an increase in software as a service model. Now, we struggle every year with how to use terms and phrases that are familiar to attorneys and we do some explaining in the past we called it web-based applications this year we tried it with web-based software or service sometimes referred to as software as a service <laughs> or SaaS. but we saw about 20 percent of the total population using some sort of SaaS, or admitting to it at least, and then that number is much higher, interestingly, at the solo market, which 23%, or excuse me, 24%, if you round up, say that they are using some sort of SaaS. Now, the interesting thing is there that we didn't ask, don't know, <laughs> and I suspect when you're in a large firm environment, they probably are not entirely aware of where their software lives. Yeah, I bet that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just overall, we, we put don't know for most of the questions, and we find that the larger the firm, the more likely they are to not, to not know. know. <laughs> That's why you pay all those extra hundreds of dollars per hour. <laughs> well, and I, I think, and the reason that we ask that, and the reason I think it is telling is, one, looking at the current state of the economy and what's been going on with law firms over the past year or so, is that a lot of large firm attorneys for a variety of reasons, are going out and opening their own practices. And they really are at a disadvantage because they knew what – they were pretty aware of what they were using, but they really never knew enough to go try to replicate it on their own. So there's a lot of opportunity for education, I think, especially in these programs like Jim does for starting a, a practice where we really have to get down to the nuts and bolts and basics of, of training and teaching attorneys about – technology. I have to tell you that John just passed me a note. This is our editor, John Simic, and he says, if you ask them a question that said, are you in a large law firm, you probably ought to put a don't know block for them, for them there, too. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> Always helpful. You guys have no idea how hard it is to keep a straight face when he keeps passing me notes when we record these podcasts. <laughs> Catherine, did I, did I give you your last word yet, or was there anything else you wanted to add? I I don't really have anything else to add. It's always fun to go through six volumes of survey data every year. We do learn a lot. You know, I think probably the thing that surprises me year over year is that even though we are seeing, we saw a bit of a rise, you know, because Jim and I and Sharon, I'm sure you do too, we talk about these wonderful legal specific tools like document assembly and practice management that are written specifically for attorneys and how they work. Yet in our surveys year over year, we're not seeing the biggest adoption of some of these. I mean, things like social media and smartphones apparently are far more interesting than um, using something that's designed to help you practice more effectively. But this year we saw a 
63% of the attorneys said that they were using some sort of practice management. And as always, when we ask them what it is that they're using, the number one product was Microsoft Outlook. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're in our line of work, that's a very funny answer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Catherine, as always, you're a walking encyclopedia of legal technology, and we want to thank you very much for helping us to spotlight some of the survey's most interesting data. Yes, very much, Catherine. We appreciate you joining us. I will note that in our show notes to this edition, we will have the links for information to purchase the survey, parts of it if some of you are interested too. But again, Catherine, we really appreciate you stopping by to visit with us and to highlight some of this information. I think lawyers are always interested in knowing what other lawyers are up to. I agree. And Jim and Sharon, thanks so much for having me. And John in the background, thanks for <laughs> being you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. <laughs>